I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Hello, everyone out there, and thanks for joining me today. You are listening to Once Upon a Gene, and I am your host, Effie Parks. I have a very special guest today. Well, all of my guests are special, but this one is extremely busy right now as he's working on a literal cure for COVID. So I'm thankful he took the time to chat with me for the podcast. His best-selling memoir is out right now, and it's called Chasing My Cure. And let me tell you, it was a wild ride. While in medical school, he was abruptly hospitalized and soon diagnosed with something called idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease, IMCD. You cannot put this book down. I felt like I was in a Keanu Reeves movie the entire time watching this man die and come back to life. His crusade to stay alive and to find a cure is legendary, and he didn't stop there. With his work with Castleman Disease Collaborative Networks, he's helping other rare diseases to reproduce his approach in finding cures and treatments. There's so much to learn from him, so definitely go get this book and find other interviews where he dives deeper into the science of everything because it is so interesting. And while he is kind of a big deal, what is most profound to me about him is his genuine demeanor. I took so much of his time on the day of our interview, and when it was all over, and I'm sure he had a million other things to do, he stopped to ask me about Ford. He's such a kind individual, and I'm so grateful that a patient like him, a doctor like him, is out there changing the world. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. David Fagenbaum. Hello, Dr. Fagenbaum, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I'm, I'm so grateful you took the time to chat with me. I know you're so busy and you're literally saving the world right now. So thank you so much. Tr trying to help in a very small way, <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> so I discovered your book, Chasing My Cure, a couple months ago, and I was enthralled, obviously, with your story. And I messaged you like before I was even halfway through it. Like every day I was telling my husband, babe, you don't even know what happened to Dr. Fagenbaum today. It was amazing. I loved your book. Thank you for writing it. Again, it's titled Chasing My Cure. And congratulations, it became a bestseller recently. Thank you. Yeah, we just found out in May. Thank you so much. It means people are reading it. And, and you know, it, it means that this message is getting out there. As you know, I, I wrote it because I learned so much about life from nearly dying five times. And I felt like there were lessons I couldn't take to the grave with me. I felt like there were lessons that I needed to get out to the world. So yes, we were really excited to see that, um, that it's, you know, people are picking it up and, it, and it's, it's meaning something to them. It's one of the best books I've ever read. And I love that you put it that way, that you learned so many valuable lessons and you just couldn't keep them locked away. That's really cool. So for those who don't know yet, can you give us a rundown on your diagnosis of Castleman disease? Sure. So I was a healthy third year medical student at the University of Pennsylvania. I was actually training to become an oncologist in memory of my mom. She had passed away from cancer a few years before. And um, out of nowhere, I just uh, became incredibly sick. I was hospitalized with my liver, my kidneys, my bone marrow, my heart, and my lungs all shutting down. And, and we didn't know why. It was just completely out of nowhere. And um, I got so sick that I gained about 70 pounds of fluid. I even had my last rites read to me because the doctors were certain that I wouldn't survive. And obviously, and, and thankfully, um, I got treatment, which saved my life. But unfortunately, I would go on to have relapse after relapse after relapse and come to learn that the disease that I have called idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease is a really rare condition where the immune system basically attacks and shuts down your vital organs for no known cause. And so it's really hard to treat diseases when you don't actually know what cause 
causes them. And so um, it set me on this odyssey um, to, as my book's titled, To Chase My Cure, Chasing My Cure. And as I said earlier, um, I learned a lot along the way just about life and living and resilience and hope that I just felt like I had to share with the world. What were the symptoms that sort of came up and how quickly did it put you in the hospital the first time? I was a medical student. I was on this OBGYN rotation and my first symptom was fatigue. And you're probably like, wait a minute, aren't aren't all medical <laughs> students tired? And, and you're right. I mean, I was kind of like, I'm really tired, but I'm like always really tired. So why, why is this different? And it became a fatigue that was so bad that I would go into my patient's rooms and I would see a patient. And then as soon as I would see that patient, I would go find an empty hospital room and I would go lay down on the empty bed and I would set my alarm for seven minutes later. So that way I could take a six minute nap because I would fall asleep as soon as I closed my eyes. I would wake up six minutes later and then I would walk to the next room and then I would just keep repeating it over and over throughout the day because I was so tired that I couldn't even be awake for more than 10 or 15 minutes at a time. And the only way I could like, you know, keep doing what I was doing was see a patient, sleep, see a patient, sleep. And that was despite lots and lots of coffee, lots and lots of Red Bulls. And I knew that that just wasn't normal. I mean, I don't think you have to be a medical student or a doctor to know that that sort of insatiable fatigue is not normal. And eventually the fatigue progressed into noticing that I had lumps in my neck, which turned out to be enlarged lymph nodes and fluid accumulating at my ankles, which turned out to be because my liver and my kidneys were shutting down. Incredible abdominal pain and chest pain due to uh, this organ failure. And so it started out as fatigue, which like many people, I, I kind of put aside until it just got too much. Oh, I can't even imagine that. That's intense. It was very intense. Yeah. In fact, I'm, I'm not a dramatic person, but I told my closest friends that I thought I was dying. And they're like, Dave, you're just a little tired. You know, like, what do you mean you're dying? And I was like, no, like you, you don't understand. There's, there's something, you know, really, really bad happening right now. And I, I don't know what it is. You talk a lot about your family, and I'm really sorry about the loss of your mom when you were so young to brain cancer. The moments that you had in the hospital with your sisters and your dad, do you feel like your family sort of became more of a unit after your mom passed away, or were you all super close and connected the entire time? We definitely got closer after my mom passed away. You mentioning my mom makes me smile and um, was just thinking about a, a couple of things um, when you mentioned her. And that was that you're right. I, I lost her uh, when I was 19 years old and it was um, the most difficult experience in my life. But somehow because of the impact that she had on me for those 19 years and because I was able to watch the way that she battled cancer um, so gracefully and so gritty, when I was then going through a similar experience, even though she wasn't physically there, I really did feel like she had imprinted on me so much of who she was um, that, she, yeah, she may not have been there physically, but she was still still very much with me during those times, uh, just from all the lessons that she had taught me. And then, and then to your other point around, my family just getting so close when, when I became ill. My mom used to always like to talk about silver linings when she was alive. And she encouraged me to not just look for silver linings, but look to create silver linings. And I think that's a really important distinction. And, and what you're talking about here is actually how our family created a silver lining. It was awful that I got sick and we could have just chose to let like whatever happens happens and our family do whatever it may be, maybe drift apart, maybe stay the same. But we, we chose to to say, let's actually create something positive out of something that's just really, really bad. And so that makes me happy to, to think about how um, I hadn't made that connection yet. But we, yeah, we, we, we did get closer. And, and I think that was where we created a silver lining. You created like the first of its kind program in memory of your mom for college of, you know, young people grieving for the loss of a parent. Can you tell us about that organization that you started? Sure. So this is, again, just a reflection of, of who my mom was and the kind of amazing person that she was. Uh, after she passed away, I found myself just completely devastated. And all I wanted to do was do something. I wanted to like put my energy and my sadness towards something positive. And again, I think that's really because of the things that she taught me in her life. And I actually told her just a couple of weeks before she passed away that I would 
create something in her memory um, for other kids just like me. And I really didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't know what it was going to be, or I, I just, I, this is just what I told her. And of course, when you make a promise like that to someone that you love so dearly, you will go to all you know ends of the earth to make that, make that promise a reality. And so when I got back to Georgetown, I started talking to people about what I had gone through and saying, I want to start this group for, for other grieving college students. And I was just completely shocked that close friends of mine from my freshman and sophomore year at Georgetown and, and even people that weren't close friends, but that were classmates of mine started telling me about how they had gone through similar experiences, how like one of my closest friends, her, her mom had died from brain cancer two years before. And she had never mentioned that to me. And I'd never mentioned that to her. And it became just really clear that the biggest problem with grief within college in particular, but also even outside of college is just this, this silence that, that most of us have, where we just keep it to ourselves. And so we all feel alone when the reality is, is actually many of us have gone through something similar, um, but we just don't talk about it. So everyone thinks they're the only person going through it. And so I started this organization called AMF. My mom's initials were, Anne, or her name was Anne Marie Fagenbaum. Her initials were AMF. And um, so we started the group. I named it after her like I, I promised her I would. It initially stood for ailing mothers and fathers. And then soon we transitioned it into actively moving forward because we didn't want it just to be for college students dealing with a sick or deceased parent. We wanted it to be open to any college student coping with the illness or death of a loved one, however they define loved one. And amazingly, um, that that group, I, I think I'd maybe say, unfortunately, the group flourished. And I say unfortunate because <laughs> I, I really wish it, it, it didn't. I really wish that it was like sure. me in my dorm room by myself. But fortunately and unfortunately, it flourished. And um, my best friend from growing up and I created a nonprofit organization called National Students of AMF so that we could really spread it nationwide. And, and I'm so happy to share that it's still going strong these days. It's part of an organization called Heal Grief. Um, but AMF continues on. I haven't been involved in AMF for many years. And um, most people, I think, that are part of AMF around the country probably don't even know that AMF um, stood for my mom's initials. But I can't tell you how special it is to just think my mom, that her legacy uh, is is continuing to help people and who she was. Her initials are you know daily being uttered as a, as a supportive resource. It, it just it means so much to me. It was definitely one of my favorite parts in your book was learning about your mom and kind of knowing that this sort of first part in your story before you got sick was you already turning a hope into action by creating something to make people feel less isolated in grief. So thanks for sharing that. I love that part. Well, thank you. So I want to kind of go back to your episodes with Castleman disease um, when you were in the hospital and they didn't know what it was. You got better ish the first time, right? They, they gave you some treatment of chemotherapy stuff. That's right. And you walked out for a couple weeks. That's right. Without knowing what happened. Yeah. And one of my doctors, the ICU doctor, I saw him on the way out of the hospital and I said, what do you think that was? And he said, said I don't know, but let's hope it doesn't come back. And um, <laughs> I'm just like, wait a minute. I, I also hope it doesn't come back. But you know, I wish we could get a little bit more specific or scientific than, than just let's hope that it doesn't come back. Oh my gosh, that's freaky. So how did you eventually get the actual diagnosis? So then I, I went home and this is home in North Carolina where I was recovering. Everyone was so excited. You know, David's back to feeling well. He survived this awful thing. Um, you know, it's in his rearview mirror. Uh, some people even, you know, told me that this was just kind of a test of my character and I passed and I was like, wait a minute, you know, I, I don't know if, if it's that simple, but I really wasn't willing to just be like, you know, I wasn't willing to, to celebrate and be like, yes, whatever that was, it didn't kill me. I'm just going to go back to normal. And so I spent much of the next four weeks just pouring through medical records. So even from rec records from the time I was a kid, is there something in my data? Is there something in there that could help to explain why I just almost died and then I just kind of miraculously survived? And I was deep into those records uh, in about three and a half, four weeks later when all of that fatigue came rushing back. And I remember there was one night when, or I guess one one day when, when my sister uh, came in into my bedroom to wake me up and it was... 2 p.m. and I had been sleeping for over 16 hours and um, and she had to wake me up 16 hours into my sleep and we both just kind of looked at each other like 
this is not good that, you know, that fatigue that was there, um, you know, before just, you know, a few weeks before that ended up leading to the hospital, you know, this 16 hours without, you know, without, um, waking up on your own, you know, you're, you're pretty tired and there was no reason for that. It wasn't like I had not been sleeping before then. This was the, this was a sign that my disease was coming back. And sure enough, um, just in the next couple of days, all of the organ failure began again, my liver and my kidneys, my heart, my lungs started shutting down. And pretty soon I was, I was incapacitated and back in the hospital. Oh my goodness. I know when you were in the hospital, obviously it was extremely painful physically and mentally and emotionally, but there were so many moments in your book that made me laugh out loud. (laughs) And I, I kind of, I haven't stopped thinking about them. You're in the hospital and you don't know what's happening to you. And you're filling up with like 70 pounds of fluid and you're swollen and you have these crazy blood moles all over your body. And I don't know if you've lost your hair by now, but like you're finding time to laugh in these situations with your dad and with your friends. And it was, it's, it's really amazing to me. How important do you think that was to sort of find little bits of joy during this time where you were dying? I think it was so important. I think that not even just for me, but kind of for like for my family, um, just as a unit for us to find things to laugh about. And and you're right, there was a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. And 99.9% of the time, we were not laughing and it was really scary. But that 0.1% of the time when we were laughing together was exactly what we needed to get through the really, really tough stuff. And so I, I just started, you know, chuckling, thinking about a couple of those moments. And again, these are <laughs> fleeting moments within months of, of suffering, but those moments were just exactly what I needed. When, when my, one of my really good friends uh, leaned in to give me a hug and his stethoscope hit into my forehead, we thought for a second at this time I had very, very low platelets. So I was at this constant risk of bleeding. And we thought that his stethoscope was like literally you know, that hitting into my head was going to be like the end for me, which that probably should have been really serious. Um, oh my gosh, Francisco, you won't like you, you just, you're going to kill him. Like your stethoscope, that's going to be it for me. But like, it just was really funny. Cause we just, were just like, we just were frozen. Like we couldn't, we, we both just were looking at each other and I was like, oh my gosh, I think my best friend just like poked me to death <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to die because of the stethoscope that hit into my forehead. And, um, and yeah, I think that objectively, maybe some people would be like, that's not fun. But I'm like, no, it really was funny. Oh my gosh, it was funny. Yeah, it's like, I just think that um, in the midst of really tough times, I think it kind of feel, makes you feel like you have some control back over the situation if you can laugh about things. Because obviously it was a terrible situation. Everything about those those months and, and truly years uh, were, were terrible. But um but I think those moments were just were so important. And again, I'm going to keep going back to my mom. She taught me that she was not like, I would not try to classify her as like a comedian who was always looking to make people laugh. She was an incredibly thoughtful, um, just graceful person. But when when we needed to smile about something, that's when she came through with something to make us smile about. I love that. Your best friend almost killing you was definitely a a high point in the book for me. (laughs) And also when you were so full of fluid and you were walking around the hospital with your dad and a guy who was inebriated (laughs) mistaked you for his pregnant wife. But then I think my favorite part about that was you you all cheersed to it a couple (sighs) years later on the anniversary. And I was like just laughing about it. It was so amazing. And I hope you cheers to that every year because it's the best anniversary. We need to because, you know, it was New Year's <laughs> Eve. So the reason this guy was drunk at this hospital, he, he's at this, the cancer floor of this hospital is that it was New Year's Eve and he was coming to see a family member after like, you know, enjoying an evening of New Year's Eve. And, and just as you said, my dad and I were just like so happy. I was feeling better after months of being ill. And, and yeah, he thought he said, good luck to you and your wife. And we're like, wife, what is he talking about? I'm like, look, to my dad, I'm like, wife, what, what, what's going on? And I'm like, oh, he thinks I'm my dad's pregnant wife. And, um, <laughs> and yeah, and, and then you're exactly right. So exactly two years later, after that moment, um, I was back in the exact same hospital now with what was my fifth episode of this disease. It was crazy to re- be right back in that place. Um, but at, on a similar note, just as you said, 
I had just started to turn the corner. The chemotherapy had just started to kick in and um, I was starting to feel a little bit better and and just well enough that we could break out some uh, sparkling apple juice and um, <laughs> and cheers to, to that moment. And again, I think that like that was, we just had, we needed to smile and um, you know, the, the sparkling apple juice and, and that memory made us smile. Yeah, I mean, normally I read a lot of books like this and you kind of have to take a deep breath and kind of get in that mindset of knowing that you're going to be reading something so real and so serious. And so I do want people to know how much humor and love also fills your book. It's it's really incredible. It's a wild ride. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, you know, I'm closing in on 10 years since my diagnosis. So that I mentioned that first day I went to the hospital. It was actually August 13th of 2010. I have people ask me about like, you know, what how how long ago does it seem? Because you're right, it, it has been a wild ride. It feels like seven decades ago because <laughs> so much has happened. Um, so much happened in those first three and a half years. So much has happened in the last six and a half years. Um, so yes, it's been it's been been uh, a long a long time. It feels like. So, what was the moment that you had like that punch in the gut when you realized that the options for treatment had dried up after that first or second visit? It was May of. 2012. And at this stage, I had gotten out of the hospital after that long period of time. It was almost six months. And then I had gone back to medical school and uh, I was on this experimental drug, a drug that we had heard was just saving patients' lives all over the world. And there was this incredible sense of hope and optimism that we had that this was the drug. And I thought back about all the times I had hoped and prayed for a drug that was going to save my mom's life and how none of those drugs had come through for her. And, you know, I, it felt like this was that miracle we'd been praying for and hoping for for all those years and it was going to save my life. And unfortunately, about a year after starting on that drug, I had another full-blown relapse. So all of the same symptoms as before came back. And again, I was in just total denial. I was back in the hospital treating patients and I just did not want to admit that this was a relapse. It couldn't have been. I mean, how could, how could I be relapsing? I'm on this drug. This is an experimental drug that's working. It works so well in the lab and in these mice that have a Castleman's-like syndrome. It works so well. So we had heard in other patients and, and this was it. This was, uh, you know, I, I can't be relapsing. And, um, and sure enough, I found myself back in hospital rooms, taking naps on beds and even taking naps on the floor um, in hospitals just to try to be able to make it through the day. And um, and again, that's not a, a normal thing. And so um, I had this relapse and I remember I, I flew out to Little Rock, Arkansas, even though I was experiencing organ failure and, and it probably you know, was, was maybe not the safest thing to fly, but Little Rock is where the world's expert is for Castleman disease. And um, so I went out to see him and right away they hospitalized me and they right away started me on chemotherapy. And my doctor came in to see me as I was getting this chemo. My dad, my sisters, and my girlfriend, Caitlin, they were all in the room. And uh, he told me, he explained to me, you've now failed to respond to the only drug in development for this disease. It's there, there are no more drugs in development. And I said, well, what about leads? Like, are there some other promising leads? Like maybe someone else somewhere is going to be able to pursue those leads. And he said, no, there, there are no more promising leads. And I was like, well, are there researchers out there who are, you know, doing promising work and maybe they're going to find some sort of breakthrough and lead to a drug. And, and he explained to me that there were not. And the feeling of, of going from, I'm on this drug, it's going to keep me in remission. I can get back to my former life to realizing that there was no going back to my former life. And that, um, and that if I wanted to survive, if I was actually hoping for a future, if I hoped for a day that I could get married to Caitlin, my girlfriend, or, or have a family, that I would need to to do something about it, and when I think about the odds of, um, of you know where we stood back then, I I I very much I wasn't naive. I realized that it was very very unlikely that we were going to make any progress in time to save my life. Maybe one in a million odds, but to or maybe not to quote um, Dumb and Dumber, but I think that <laughs> you know I, I I kind of looked at those one in a million odds, and, and maybe it is foolish, and maybe it was dumb, but I looked at those one in a million odds. And I said, so you're saying there's a chance and, uh, <laughs> and, and there's a reason that's funny because like, you know, usually you hear one in a million odds and you're like, oh gosh, you know, that's it. But, and, and I, I think that I accepted it was one in a million odds, 
but I knew that um, I knew it was a zero in a million odds that I was going to survive and have this future that I wanted so badly if I just hoped that someone somewhere would figure it out for me. And so I decided to turn to turn my hope into action to say, okay, what am I hoping for? I, I want a treatment. I want to live. A, uh, I want to live a life where I can get married and have a family. Okay, well, what can I do today to get closer to that? And, and it became clear that I needed to start conducting laboratory research, and I also needed to create a foundation so that it wouldn't just be me in this lab by myself because it's unlikely I would have made the progress on my own. But what we really needed was an international effort to take on Castleman disease. And I started the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network. This is where you became like the Keanu Reeves of doctors. (laughs) This is like one of the best parts. And so you're just like getting all of the information that had ever been on not only Castleman's, but your personal medical records. And you started to compare them. What would that be like? That's the repurposing of drugs part, right? That's right. Yeah. So it was basically, I'm going to do as many experiments on my samples as I can to understand what's happening in me. And of course, as you said, importantly, what happens in in other Castleman's patients because you always want to build upon what's known. But then you're exactly right. The next step for repurposing is, okay, if I know what's going on in my cells and they're doing more of this or too little of that, then I immediately, and really this was the plan all along, was to say, well, what drugs already exist that can turn that around? So if I find out that my cells have too much of this one particular protein or or too much of this one particular communication line turned on, I'm going to then ask, well, what drugs exist that can turn that off or what drugs exist that can inhibit that thing or, or increase that thing if it's, if it's too low? And again, not what drug can I create because we all know that the timeline for developing drugs are, are, are measured in decades and the cost is measured in billions and the likelihood of success is probably less than 1%. So my plan from the beginning was never, I'm going to figure out a drug or develop a drug to save my life, the plan from day one was, I'm going to study my disease from every angle possible, and I'm going to figure out, is there an Achilles heel in my disease where there's a drug that already can take that thing down? And it's it's all about drugs that already exist. So drugs that are FDA approved for something else that no one ever had thought to use for Castleman disease is one of those things just out there. And um, and that's what that's what my, my journey became. Well, I think for me, that was such an important thing to Uh, read about because, you know, I think, okay, so the way to find a treatment or a cure for CTNNB1, the rare disease my son has, is to raise all this money, find a brilliant team, and then maybe they'll develop a wonder drug. But that's, yeah, it's like you said, it's decades. It's rare diseases. You know, it's on a time, it's on a, we're on a timeline here. And I didn't even think about the idea of drug repurposing. And I don't know if a lot of others do, or if a lot of others even really know about it, aside from the medical community. I I think you're totally right. I think most people don't recognize the potential for drug repurposing. I think we all just kind of assume if there's a drug out there at my neighborhood pharmacy that could potentially help my son, that we would already know it, right? I mean, I think we just assume that that would be the case, right? Like that, that can't be possible, that there could just be a drug, you know, within a mile of me that could be the answer for someone that I love. But the reality is, is that there are drugs out there that are effective for diseases that we just don't know about. And it's not because anyone's maliciously hiding it. It's because the research just hasn't been done. And so um, no one knew that this particular communication line was stuck in the on position in me and in other patients with my disease. We just knew that we had Castleman disease and no one had ever made the connection to the drug that's saving my life. And so I I think that it's important to remember that there are likely many diseases that are out there where if you tested every drug known to man, that there maybe is not a drug that is actually effective that already exists. Um, And that maybe it is true that we actually have to develop a brand new drug. But for many diseases, there are drugs out there that we just don't know about yet. We, We just don't know that they could be. It's kind of like you can almost imagine that drugs are like a bunch of keys and, you know, diseases are a bunch of, of, doors. Uh, I don't know if I'm not, maybe not giving a great analogy, but the idea is that it's almost like we know that these keys exist and we know that this key fits in this lock, um, but we haven't yet figured out all the other locks that that key could fit in. And, um, and, and I think that we have to do really concerted um, efforts and, and focus on looking for drugs that can be repurposed. Yeah, no, I think that was a perfect analogy. <laughs> Thank and you. I, I think another important piece with the repurposing of drugs is that 
we already know what a lot of the side effects are, right? Like a lot of these drugs have had at least a few years in, you know, being used. So there's the data in there that's going to show us what can happen. That's right. When you develop a new drug, you don't know what are the, you don't know the side effect profile because that hasn't been given to humans. You don't know what it actually does or if it does anything. I mean, there are a number of drugs that have undergone clinical development that turn out to just not have really any sort of positive effect. So at least in this case, you know what it does in a bad way, you know what it does in a good way, and it's accessible. Like you could actually pick it up at your neighborhood CVS. And so those three things make drug repurposing incredibly useful because when you talk about a new drug, you don't know the safety profile, you don't know what it actually does positively, and you can't get it. I mean, frankly, it's almost impossible to get these things. There are compassionate use programs, but the majority of drugs that get studied don't actually ever get approved. And so um, the drug that you might get through compassionate use will likely actually never get approved for anything. And so it's um, it seems like such a common sense approach. But I think that the challenge is, is that there are a bunch of incentive structures that are not really in place to make this done um, rapidly, especially for rare diseases. Um, when you think about 7,000 rare diseases, I mean, how could you possibly study 2,700 drugs on 7,000 different diseases where you need potentially hundreds of people in each trial. I mean, I don't even know how many zeros that is, but that's like, you know, lots and lots of different combinations and lots of people for studies. And so you you can't imagine that you would know everything. But what I really am, am arguing for is not that we need to know everything about everything, but it's that for things like the condition that your son has and diseases like Castleman disease where we, we where we really don't know anything, that we do the work to figure out, well, what are the really promising potential drugs that could be repurposed? Let's go after them. I mean, I recognize it's hard to fathom 7,000 different drugs, but or 7,000 diseases and and almost 3,000 drugs, but but let's let's figure out what, what are the rational ones and, and let's really dive deeply. And, and this is not instead of new drug development. This is not instead of gene therapy, instead of cellular therapies. This is in addition to and parallel to because a lot of times these repurposed drugs, they may be helpful in a small way, but they're not curative the way that other therapies are. But hey, we'll take helpful in a small way, right? And yeah. then, you know, I mean, I think there's many diseases, my mine included. I'll take anything. Just, just if it's going to help me in a small way, you know, I'll take it. And, and in the meantime, we can work on on long term cures. Um, so it's not an either or. I think it's a both. Yeah. So what are some of the incentives that need to be put in place to encourage doctors and researchers to explore drug repurposing instead of finding something new? Yeah, I think it's so complicated. And I think about this a lot because I'm literally talking to you today because of one of these repurposed drugs. And so I feel this like incredible, um, I don't know if debt's the right word, but like almost like a debt to the universe that that I need to like do what I can so that this can be repeated in other people. You know, the fact that it it's like keeping me alive, like what can I do to get this to other people and get this concept to other rare diseases. Um, and so I think about it a lot. And I have to say, I haven't come up with any brilliant ideas, I, I don't believe. Um, there are a number of, of kind of piecemeal approaches that I think um, we need to start taking to at least start to make a difference. One of them um, is a bill that I, I helped to propose a few years back that would make it so that if a drug is approved for a common condition, and if you do the studies to prove that it works for a rare disease, then you get extra an extra six months of market exclusivity. So you basically get extra patent life on your drug if you take a common disease drug and get it approved, repurpose it for a rare disease. Um, I think that's that's one small way that you can address something like this is through a, um, an, a financial incentive like that. But that doesn't really address all the drugs that are already generic where there isn't that financial incentive. And I think that um, the more I've thought about it, I think that there probably needs to be like a concerted, I don't know if it's a federal effort or some sort of public-private partnership, but really to ask the question, what drugs are already out there that could be treatments or cures for diseases that don't have any? And that actually put in a very concerted effort to this. And there is an agency um, in the NIH called NCATS that does a lot of what's called high-throughput drug screening, where basically you take cells from a patient with a disease and you treat each of those cells with a different drug. And then you see, do those cells die? Do they live? Whatever it is that you're looking uh, looking for. If it's cancer, you want, you want them to die. If it's a neurological disease, you want the nerve cells to survive. Um, and so you do this huge test of thousands of drugs on all these cells. 
And, um, and then the idea would be that if it works in, a, in, a, in the cells in a dish, then it would likely work in humans. And I think that it, there's a lot of rationale for that, but unfortunately it really hasn't panned out the way that I think all of us hoped it would. There aren't any examples that I'm aware of where, um, where these high throughput drug screens have clearly identified a new candidate to, to go after a disease in a new way. And so I think we need to keep doing that, but I think we need to also start thinking about creative ways to use artificial intelligence to help to predict drugs that are likely yeah. to help people and then maybe just move right to clinical trials and, I, and i'm not saying that like that we should just be you know launching lots of clinical trials without lots of data but i think sometimes we just need to we just need to find out do these things work or not yeah well i think your story and this experience that you've had is just re-sparking and i think it's going to light a fire under this idea in general with the patients and the parents and families of mm-hmm all of us with rare disease. I mean, if anyone can get it done, I think it's this group of people who can push things with so much passion, right? And I think that you kind of opening this idea up and showing us the the success that you've had with it so far is really going to help move things along. And it's really cool. And I'm excited. You're right, though. I mean, the rare disease community, there's there's nothing like the fire and the passion within the rare disease community among patients and loved ones. It's um, it's just incredible to see and it's incredible to, to be a part of. And you're right. I mean, I think that what my story is an example of is, is that this drug that's saving my life was sitting at my neighborhood pharmacy for years while I was in and out of the hospital. And, you know, the idea that one of these drugs could just be sitting there, you know, within walking distance of us um, I think I think that is a concept that um, that I can't stop thinking about and um, that I think all of us need to try to figure out ways to to really make it so that if it's already there like if the solution exists that we can figure out what disease does it does it work for um, and like I said there are going to be diseases where there is not a solution but we need to do everything we can to make sure the ones that do exist we figure out Yeah, I know in your book, too, you talk about this moment that you always uh, see in movies when the answer finally comes to whomever and, you know, they cock their head and there's like this moment. What was that eureka moment for you where you realized like, oh, my gosh, this could be it? So I finally got out of the hospital. I mentioned that the 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 big relapse I had when we cheersed on that New Year's Eve um, <laughs> a couple of years later, and um, at that stage I was engaged to Caitlin, and um, all I wanted to do was to make it to our wedding date. That's all I could think about. It wasn't. I mean, I had been in and out of the hospital so much over the previous few years that I was not looking for heroics. I was not like foolish to the thought that, um, that, you know, this is a terrible disease and it's likely going to take my life soon. But all I could think about was May, May 24th, 2014. And, um, you know, could I find something, could I find one of these drugs that already exists that I could try on myself to make it to our wedding date? Um, and if I made it only made it to May 25th, I would have felt like that was the, the greatest success of my life. And so I got to work and I, I got out of the hospital. I got chemotherapy, saved my life for the fifth time. But, but really with each of these Castleman's relapse, it, it's, it brings with it about a 20 to 25% mortality with each relapse. And so I basically had played Russian roulette five times. And, um, you know, by the fifth time that you played Russian roulette, you're, you're done playing. You're like, I, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and I was, I mean, I was like, I, I cannot do this anymore. And I, and I have to make it to May 24th, 2014. And, um, Going through all of my data, running experiment after experiment, um, reanalyzing, um, kind of looking at the data from every angle, I found this. I, I came up with this basically hypothesis or this theory that this particular communication line, um, which your immune system is really complex, and you've got trillions of cells spread out throughout your body, so they have to figure out a way to communicate with one another. And one of those communication lines is called mTOR, M-T-O-R. And my data suggested to me that maybe the mTOR pathway was turned on. So you could kind of imagine your immune system is like a bunch of firefighters and there are fire alarms that can turn on. And when they're turned on, the firefighters go into attack mode, they put out the fire. Um, but you could imagine like what would happen if all if all fire alarms all over a city were turned on firefighters would just be going all over the city just like you know shooting water everywhere causing damage there's actually no fires but they would be causing damage in the attempt to try to put out fires so it seemed to me that the fire alarm was was stuck in the on position in my immune system and amazingly um, and importantly there's a drug that actually inhibits that 
particular communication line. It's called an mTOR inhibitor. It's called serolimus. And before I started testing it on myself, I wanted to do this really final experiment to like kind of prove my hypothesis. I, I thought it was turned on from looking at stuff in my blood, but but was it actually on? Um, and so I did this experiment where I looked at, it was my lymph node tissue. I compared it to normal lymph nodes. I wish I could show you the image because it was so striking to look under the microscope. And it just basically brown means that it's a positive stain. And like my lymph node was just completely brown and the normal oh lymph gosh. node, which is negative, was completely blue. And I had to repeat it a few times to really convince myself, but I was like, okay, you know, this thing is on. And in, in science and in medicine, things are always way more complicated than you think. So like there are plenty of examples where you find something is way on and you're like, awesome, I'm going to turn it off and it's going to cure cancer. <laughs> and then you find out that like you can turn it off all you want, but there's like a backup fire alarm and it's like, yeah. oh my gosh, I turned off the main fire alarm, but like the backup is, is raging and, and it's, and it's even worse. I mean, sometimes, some cases like you actually make things worse when you do this stuff. And so, um, we didn't have any guarantees that it was going to work, but I didn't have any other options. And so I shared the data with my doctors and at that stage I had finished medical school. Um, but I really was, would certainly, I was not in a position to make any sort of decision on my own. This was something I really needed to talk to a lot of people about and, and they agreed that it looked like I was onto something. And so um, my doctor wrote this prescription for me and, and I started taking it and, um, and just hoped um, that I could make it to that, to our wedding date. That's amazing. And there's so, I don't know if there's so many, but I've read several stories of doctors over the last century who have sort of experimented on themselves and found these cures or found like really valuable information to move medicine forward. And it's really courageous and really awesome. Oh, thank you. There's, a, I guess, a couple things to it. It's like, you know, there are sometimes things like the data that I had. Yes, I saw this really strong mTOR signature and signal, but like I said, sometimes you can block that thing and then and then actually cause harm where like the backup fire alarm rages even worse and then now you're even more sick. But there's something about testing something like that on yourself where um, I think it would have been hard for me to start to test that or to talk to a patient about that and be like, I think it could work, but it also could make things worse. And I don't really know. It's so, it was so early that it would have been very hard for me to, um, to put that sort of a risk on, um, on someone else. But there's something about like when it's yourself where, you know, you'll maybe you, you'll be more willing to take it, um, than, than maybe the risk of hurting someone causing harm in someone else, you know, you can understand the risk. So I think that's part of it. I think that there's also, the people, you know, th those people, myself included, have been fortunate to benefit from from these sort of self experimentations. Um, I think we're the ones that that maybe you might hear about or read about, but I think there's also many ex examples where the self experimentation isn't successful and where um, where you know the drug didn't work. And and I think what's tough is that we don't we don't hear those stories. Not that. Uh, I think it's just that we have to be aware that it's um, that this stuff is is a lot of it is kind of random chance too, is that, um, you know, I got very fortunate that, that this drug works the way that it does. Um, and I, and I do feel like you mentioned that I, I need to make a, a mention of my wonderful friend and colleague, Kazu Yoshizaki. I, I mentioned the seat, I mentioned that I started the Castle Disease Collaborative Network earlier. Um, but what I don't think I gave enough um, emphasis to is just how important this community has been to the progress we've made. My book's titled Chasing My Cure, but if I could um, do it over again, if my publishers would let me, I think it would be, it would be chasing our cure. And that's because it really was an hour and it has been, and it still is a community of people going after um, cures together. And one of those people is Kazu Yoshizaki. He's this amazing doctor in Japan who back in the late eighties figured out a lot of the really fundamental aspects of Castleman disease. And unfortunately, no one made any progress from the 80s until the 2010s when I became sick. But but Kazu made really big progress in the 80s and um, developed a drug. He was sure it was going to work in Castleman's and um, he was sure it was going to be safe. And so he actually tested it on himself. He gave it to himself um, as the first human to get it. This is, I guess, back before you know ethics committees wouldn't allow you to do things like this. But he gave it to himself as the first human to get it, which I think um, I don't recommend or condone that. But I do think it's um, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Well, especially if you're at that point, you know, where you were, where the end goal to marry Caitlin yes. and start a family and just stay alive and help, you know, push forward medicine in this community as in not just Castleman, but rare disease in general, I think it outweighed the risk for you. And 
it's amazing. Yeah. And I think there's, as I look back and just, just from our conversation today, I think that I think back to all the times where, um, where I probably should not have made it where like kind of all of these moments where it's like, wow, I can't believe, um, that I was able to survive that. And then, and, and here I am, I'm sitting in a room next to my, my, my daughter's in, in her bedroom next to me and taking a nap this afternoon. And <laughs> I'm just like, wow, all of those things had to line up for me to, um, to, to make it here, to be on this podcast with you right now while, um, while I have this incredible daughter, um, next door. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And I know you've been episode free for, several years now. That's right. It's over six and a half years now that I've been. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. I had to stop myself several times from Googling you because I was like, oh my God, did he marry Caitlin? Oh my God, did he have a baby? I'm going to get so mad at him if he kicks her out of the room again. I know. And I, I get mad at myself when I think back to some of the decisions <laughs> I made early on. And it's so funny because I've like aired this to the world and I've had so many people come up to me and like, why didn't, why didn't you, you know, why did you treat Caitlin like that? Why didn't you? And I'm like, I'm sorry. I feel really bad about it. And it's like, I've just like confessed to the world. Uh, it's so funny. I mean, I think about my own sisters. I'm like, they would definitely respect my wishes and like do what I wanted. But I think if my sweet lover just really wanted to come in, they'd finally let her in. <laughs> so your sisters really had your back. Oh my gosh. They are, my sisters are so loyal. They, I, I don't, there, there are a few things that I think I could ask them to do where they wouldn't be like, you know what, Dave, for you, we're going to do it. I'm, I'm very fortunate. I've got, I've got the most amazing sisters in the world. And I should say, yes, they're very loyal. They do also tell me when I'm when I should not do something and when I am doing the wrong thing. But in that in that case, I think they felt for me, and uh, and they really, like you said, they they followed they followed my wishes. <laughs> well, I'm so happy for you, and I just I wish every disease had a David David Fagenbaum behind it. But I know you're working for our entire community, and we're so lucky to have you. And I also want to point out that you your beautiful little daughter has the same initials as your mom. So it's a, I love, I love the full circle that has come from all of this aftermath of trauma and horror. Yes. It's, it's just really, it's really beautiful and it's truly inspiring. And I'm so happy that you have shared your story with the world and I can't wait for everyone to read your book. Well, thank you. And thank you for helping to spread my story. Um, like I said, I just, in the book, I talk a lot about this concept of overtime, which is, um, I think, a, a concept very familiar to, to people in the sports world, where in overtime, you've all of a sudden, you know, the, the game's tied, you've now got this extra time that you didn't think you'd have. And in overtime, every second counts to, a, to an extent that it doesn't count during the, the regular period of time. You can make a mistake in the first quarter and you can make up for it, but you can't make a mistake in overtime. And there's this incredible focus that's required in overtime. And, and you really need, you need to be very intentional about what you do, how you do it. Um, because again, you can't make mistakes in overtime or else you lose the game. And I, and I like to think about that analogy a lot because I think it's really fitting for how I've been living ever since the first time that I almost died, ever since having my last rights read to me. I've very much been in this overtime mindset where like I know the clock's ticking down, which can be really scary. And, and, and frankly, it is scary to think like, oh, my gosh, I've got this, you know, terrible disease that, that tends to relapse on people. And I, yes, I'm doing great at six and a half years, but I don't know what tomorrow holds. But at the same time, um, it can be very clarifying to say like, okay, well, what's important in life? And so the reason I bring this up is because when um, I was approached about writing Chasing My Cure, I thought really long and hard about um, whether it made sense because, you know, writing a book takes time. And um, if, you know, if your clock's ticking down, at least for me, I want to spend that time with the people that I love doing the work that is really important to me, which is trying to advance research for Castleman's and into the immune system. Um, but I also realized that um, in that time, and again, none of us know what our what our time looks like, but in this limited time that I have, that I just felt so compelled to get these lessons out because I didn't know all of these things about life before I got sick. And, and, I, and I wish that I could have learned them without having to go through all that I did. And then I thought to myself, well, maybe I can share some of these lessons with other people so they don't have to go through all the stuff that I did to learn them. And so it makes me feel really good to hear that, um, that you, you felt like um, all that time was worth it and that, um, and that it had an impact on your life. 
I mean, it really did. And I think it will for not just parents like me or patients in the rare disease community. I mean, I think the lessons that you speak about that you hope to inspire in others is a is a way of living that everyone could take a piece from waking up every morning and having an intention yes. on who you want to be that day and how you want to make people feel. Is there anything that you would like to leave with those rare diseases that maybe don't have a lot of patients and don't have any money and maybe don't even have an organization built yet, what would you say to them to help them inspire hope and take action? I think the first thing I would say is that if you have a a loved one or if you are battling um, one of these particular rare diseases, the number one priority, you know, has to be on, on your personal battle, you know, taking care of the loved one that you have, taking care of yourself, doing what you can for, um, for your health or for your loved one's health. And if there is bandwidth on top of that, if there is either energy and or time um, on top of taking care of yourself or your loved one, then I would say that there are things that we can all do to be a part of getting us closer to what we're hoping for. I mean, all of us are hoping for treatments and cures for all of these diseases. And, um, you know, there are things you can do. There's um, getting connected with a doctor. There might be one doctor or one researcher in the whole world, but getting connected with that doctor and researcher and understanding, can you give a blood sample to that person? Can you give a small financial donation that can help them to do some research? Can you um, provide your medical data to them? And it may be that they don't have the, the protocols in place to collect the samples and the data, but, but maybe you can encourage them to do that. I think that one thing, I, I guess the word I use is like almost reluctant when I think about what it felt for me to get involved in research. And here I was, I was a third year medical student. Like, you know, who, who would kind of be in a, I don't know if it's better position, but certainly uh, more confident maybe in being able to make a difference. And and I really didn't think that I was actually going to be able to make a difference. I thought that I was very reluctant to to get involved because I was like, well, someone else somewhere is going to do it. And, you know, how much can I really make a difference? Um, But I think what I've learned along the way is that, um, and I said earlier, it's been chasing our cures because there have been way more people than just me who have made progress. And many people that were not in medical school um, when they got involved, that, that didn't necessarily have you know some of the medical training I had, but they've made an outsized impact on Castleman disease because they, they put on events and raised money for research, or they encouraged a doctor to start doing studies that, that that doctor that he or she were not considering doing beforehand. And so I think it's I think sometimes uh, we were reluctant to get involved because we just think, like, you know, what can I actually do? You know, someone else will figure it out. Um, but, you know, for most of our diseases, if there isn't a treatment yet, then that means that no one has figured it out until now. I mean, there hasn't been a cavalry yet. And and maybe you're the cavalry. And, and maybe we all I think we all feel like kind of a little unfit to be the cavalry. Like there must be someone else that could be the cavalry and come down and help us. And, and I think we all feel that way. But um, but I think the reality is, is that um, the cavalry is plural, right? There's there's more than just one horseman. And um, and I think the key is recognizing that if if you can be one of those horsemen, if you can be a part of the group that that assembles the right team to come down and take on this disease, you don't need to have a medical degree. You don't need to even have tons and tons of time. Um, if you can assemble the right team, you can make incredible progress. I love that. That's a perfect way to close. I'm really grateful that you took so much time with me today. Thank you so much. Go pick up Chasing My Cure at your local bookstore, or you can find it online, I'm sure, anywhere. Prepare to get sucked in. (laughs) Thanks, Dr. Fagenbaum. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.